Amen. You guys can turn to Galatians chapter 6. After service, we're going to take a special offering, both for coaching and for acting lessons for a Maori. <laughs> His cornhole arm needs some serious help. But uh, So Galatians, we've been, we're wrapping that up today, and so I, I just want to kind of start with where we have been. The opening part of Galatians uh, reminds us that there is no other gospel. Ashley, can you start that for me, please? That there is no other gospel, that you can't add to the gospel, you can't take away from the gospel, that the gospel is complete. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, a church where he had gone, uh, a, a, a collection of churches, the church in Galatia, uh, a bunch of different cities. He had visited over two different trips, and he had established a church there. He had discipled some elders and, and handed off to them. And his heart is in preserving and establishing the gospel within that community. So he wants to make sure that the church has the gospel correct. And so he begins with what the gospel is and how you cannot add to it. You can't take away from it. And he kind of works his way through a few different things. Our dependence on the Holy Spirit. That, that we depend on God within us to keep us in the gospel. That we don't that we don't try and add to it or do it in our own strength, that we depend on the very Spirit of God inside of us, and that we'll see that in our lives, we'll see the fruit in our lives. Right? And Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithful, gentleness, faithfulness. I know I got those out of order. They're all there. You get the idea. All right, so self, there we go, self-control. Thank you. And uh, okay, now they're all there. I get it. All right. Also, on the other side of that, we see when we're doing things in the flesh, right? We see sin instead of the fruit of the Spirit. And so last week, we really talked about Paul calling us towards maturity. And there's a, a verse in Hebrews that talks about to move on towards maturity, not this cycle of sin and repentance over and over and over again, just kind of being in this cyclical pattern in our faith but rather to mature and to move on. And so Paul's going to wrap these words up today to the Galatian church. Next week, we'll start Ephesians. I'll give you a main idea that we'll put on the, spring, uh, on the screen. So Paul closes up Galatians with a series of ways that we can grow with one another in the church when we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. So a couple things. One, this is very corporate, right? This is, when I say corporate, don't think business, think corpus, Latin word for body, right? That that we are corporate, as we gather together, we the church, not just a Sunday service. That's not necessarily what church is. That isn't what church is, something we do. But we the church, when we gather together, when we have relationship with one another, these are some things that we should grow in and mature in and how we can do it together. If there is, I know there's probably more than one, but there's a clear plague in American Christianity. It's the idea that we can do this faith alone, right? That we are independent, that we don't need one another. And that's not how the church is built. That's not how the gospel is built, right? That we are saved to a community, by Jesus to a people, and that the expression of that people is the local church, right? You can't be saved to a, core, a, a, a global church, right? You can't be a part of the body on the other side of the planet, right? But you can be a part of a local body, 
Paul, same author, writes to another church, a church in Corinth, and tells them how they are members of one another, using the human body as an example. Right In our human body, we don't really have a lot of spare parts that we're trying to get rid of. Yes, we have 10 fingers, but we're hoping tomorrow we still have 10, right? It is drastic cases where we give up parts of our body. And the idea here is that we need one another. We're not so good or so exclusive or such a good part of the body that we don't need the person across the room. Sometimes we don't always know how we need them, right? But we're called to be a body. So Galatians 6, I'm going to back up two verses to verse 25, end of chapter 5. says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Two things, really, real quick, it's one another's. So he's leaning into how we relate to one another. Now let's back up to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, now what Paul is talking about there is if we are alive spiritually. In fact, that's something we're going to talk about in two weeks in Ephesians chapter 2, but that is an image that we're given for our faith, that we begin spiritually dead and that we are awakened by God, that we're made spiritually alive. And so if we are alive in the Spirit or live by the Spirit, in other words, if we are in Christ, if we are saved, if we are followers of Jesus, however you want to say it, but if we live by the Spirit, in other words, if we're spiritually alive, then he says this, keep in step with the Spirit. So you don't begin your salvation journey. Let me rephrase that. You begin your salvation journey by the Spirit. But you don't just begin by the Spirit and then stop and move over to your strength. You are made alive by the Spirit, and then you are kept in the gospel by the Spirit. Right? That the Holy Spirit keeps us, doesn't just do something way back here, and then it's on us here, and then we hope it goes well here, but rather that we live in the strength of the Spirit. So if you're alive in the Spirit, he says, keep in step with the Spirit, stay in the Spirit, stay empowered by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, let's pause there for a minute. Dealing with sin in others, not necessarily a strong suit in the church, right? And I was trying to boil it down, like, what are our struggles with this? And I, I think we have two struggles that cause us to, to not do this very well. One, we don't deal with sin in ourselves very well. And two, we don't deal with sin in others very well. I don't know if there's another way to deal with sin, but in those two areas, we don't do very well. And so we like to ignore it in ourselves. We like to champion how others are sinful. We don't really do what God has called us to do in this area. So let me read it for you again. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, and here spiritual as mature in your faith, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So a guideline, when you're working with others, when you in your faith have been equipped to walk with someone through a struggle in their faith. Transgression is a form of sin. Transgression is like violating an oath or a regulation. In other words, doing something that God has called us not to do, Right? It's a, it's a sin of commission, something you have done 
that violates that relationship between you and God. It's kind of a big word, but think sin. So if you've done this, if someone has been caught in this, and the word caught there really is more of entangled in, right? So if someone is struggling with something, particularly sin, but it also might be someone struggling with someone that sinned against them. Could be anything, right? You who are spiritual, in other words, you who are more mature in your faith, you should walk with them. You should engage with them, but you should do it in gentleness. Now, this doesn't mean you have to have been a Christian longer than the person sitting next to you, if that's the case. Sometimes God will equip you to work with someone else in that particular area. Maybe in that area, you're mature in that area, right? You don't have to be older. You don't have to have been a Christian longer. Sometimes God just puts you in a place where you're in the life of others where you can help them. But he says, do it with gentleness. That's the guideline. Do it with gentleness. But there's a warning, too. He says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Be careful in getting caught up in helping others that you're not tempted, that you're not led astray. Now, sometimes, again, we, so, well, if we get caught up in this, maybe we'll be led astray, so we don't. But again, it says do it. It says engage with one another. Walk with one another in their struggles. If they've been caught up in a transgression, in a sin, restore them. This is like a parenting thing. See, parenting is done best, or gospel parenting is all about restoring children, right? So taking our kids, no matter what age, right, who have violated something and restoring them to the right place, right? Discipline should always have the idea of restoration. Discipline in the gospel should always have this idea, this goal as restoration. It's not just punitive, right? We know we're not our best parents when the punishment is just because we're angry and it makes us feel better, right? That's not a good day, right? But rather, when we're disciplining, training towards restoration. And that's the idea, is restoring one another, restoring their relationship with the church, restoring their relationship ultimately with God, with one another. Walk with them. Do this in a spirit of gentleness and be careful about yourself. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the obvious question is, what is the law of Christ, right? So, he's been talking about how the law, meaning Torah law, is not what people need in the church in Galatia. And that's because a group of people have come in and tried to add Torah law to the gospel. If you don't understand that, it's not the point today. Go back, listen to the earlier messages. But he says, fulfill the law of Christ. Now, just a few verses earlier in verse 14, in chapter 5, verse 14, He says the whole law, Paul writes, the whole law is fulfilled in, and quotes Jesus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, so in this, bearing one another's burdens, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So walk with one another. Now, burdens moves on beyond sin, right? Now, this moves beyond the struggles of sin, or someone is caught up in something, but bearing one another's burdens really is, is sharing life with them. And when they have a struggle, you help them through the struggle. The struggle could be anything. It could be the loss of a job. It could just be the world we live in. It could be, you know, I, I just I heard some, from some teachers this 
last week or two after the, the shooting in Texas, right? And, and teachers would pull into a parking lot and just cry, just weep, right? Because they are those people on the ground. I've heard of parents kind of pulling into the parking lot and being like, okay, it's harder to hand off my kid right now, right? Bear one another's burdens, walk with people through struggles. It could be sin. It could be something entirely different. So we'll put a note on the screen, loving one another. Paul calls us to move beyond thinking that the church and the gospel are just about ourselves and begin to understand how it applies to one another. Now, I don't remember the count, but there's between 30 and 60 one another's in the New Testament. And this is strategic one another's, not just descriptive. It's not just like the disciples said to one another. It's not that right? But it's a love one another, right? Bear the burdens of one another, forgive one another, right? Restore one another, all those things. And these one another's are intended for us, the church, that we would do with, obviously, one another, right? And again, the one another's, this can't be this global thing where like, I'm a part of the church and so is someone in Zimbabwe, right? Because I don't have that relationship to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, to love one. I don't have that. You don't have that. And so it leans into the local church. And our understanding of the local body of Christ called the church, for us, it's generations, right? Bear one another's burdens. Realize that the gospel, that Jesus, the church, it's not just about us. And that, in fact, as we grow in our faith, it becomes more and more about one another. You can imagine like little kids, right? We have infants in the room. Well, their job really is just take from, right? They don't really contribute much. I mean, they fill up a lot of diapers, but they don't really contribute to the overall goal of the home, right? They receive mostly, but as they mature, they begin to give back. Right? And, and, and that's the idea. When we're young in our faith, sometimes we just need to take, and that's okay. We're, we're taking it all in. We're infant in our faith. But then as we grow, as we mature, we begin to contribute to the larger goal of the family of faith, right? Verse 3, so if anyone is thinking he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So he's, he's reminding them that, listen, that you're a part of something bigger, and that your job is to humble yourself and be a part of that something bigger. See, humility is best seen in the gospel. In fact, our call to humility is given to us in the gospel. We talk about this a lot, that we're created and that we're created to worship God. and We have all messed that up. <clears throat> that there's a God who loves us, who designed us, and that we have broken the design. That we've sinned. In other words, we have chosen to live in ways that God has told us not to or not live in ways that God has told us to. So we've violated that, and, and like in any relationship, when there is an offense in a relationship, you pull the relationship apart, and so we've been severed in our relationship to God. And so God, knowing that we could never earn our way back to God, God comes to humanity. In fact, God gives us his son, that Jesus, God who existed eternally, Jesus who's there in creation, there throughout the Old Testament, enters into human flesh roughly 2,000 years ago. That Jesus, who is God, eternal God, would humble himself and put on human flesh. Right? That Jesus would humble himself and become like us. 
so that we could become like him, connected to God. Not only humbles himself in human flesh, but also humbles himself to the cross, that he doesn't just become like us, he becomes us and then gives his life for us. That God in human flesh would die and endure death. The very penalty of sin is death. That he would endure that for us. So that three days later he could resurrect from the grave and give us new life and ascend back to heaven where we belong the whole time. But as he goes back to heaven and sits down on the throne, as God also pours out his spirit into us. So a couple quick verses, and we'll see this one later in the summer, but Philippians 2 says this, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Creator God becomes flesh. And not only humbles himself, like from this perfect and majestic and only God to becoming limited and broken humanity. Not just that, but humbles himself not only to death, but the worst death known to humanity, death on a cross. That he does this as a model for us. Is it a part of paying the penalty for our sin? Of course. But he does this so that we can see and understand who we are to be in the gospel. Go to the next verse, please. So in James, we see this. But he gives more grace. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Right? The calling is to be like Jesus, to humble ourselves, to lower ourselves, to think less of ourselves. And really, in the gospel, all we should hear is how we mess things up and are in need of a Savior. How all we contribute to the gospel is our sin. That Jesus has to take it from there. And so we learn to be humble in the gospel, that we humble ourselves and we come under those around us to lift them up like Jesus did for us. Back in Galatians, verse 4. But let each one of you test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This has this idea of bearing our own load. Now, it just called us to bear one another's burdens, right? Well, burdens are different, right? We can walk alongside, bear one another's burdens. We can walk with them. But our load, our sin, see, that is ours. And when you get to heaven, when you stand before Jesus, you you don't get to look at him and say, you know what, I did a really good job dealing with Rob right? And it doesn't count. Like, I have to stand before God for me. You have to stand before God for you. What did you do with the gospel? And sure, there's a part of that that is, did you give it away? Did you walk with others? Did you bear one another's burdens? Did you walk in gentleness with those who are caught in transgression? But also, the first thing you stand there for is for your sin. And either you stand there in Christ, forgiven, forgiven of your sin and, 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 and included in Christ, but also responsible for what you did with that gift. That grace has been given to you, that your sin has been forgiven, 
is a gift. It is something you cannot earn, you cannot initiate, you can't contribute to. You just have to receive it because you're broken and sinful. I'm broken and sinful. And so God gives this to us as a gift, and now it is our job to steward it both in our own lives and then in the lives collectively of the church. Verse 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now I want you to listen. This is where it pays off to be a pastor. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. As he's, thank you, whoever that was. All right. So <clears throat> I'm funnier at home than I am here. Just so you know that, like it's super funny at home. But anyhow, all right. We're going to move on now. By the way, Alex is looking for work, if you know any. So uh, share all good things. So he was teaching the church in, in Galatia who was in need of this to care for their elders that were teaching them. Like, hey, contribute to them because it's not really just a part-time job, right? It's a, it's a full-time gig to care for the people, right? To walk with them, lead them, teach them. See, one of the cool things is you guys, and, and Yvette said this, all the ministry that we do, right, all of that is because of you. Your generosity, your giving, your tithing, that all fosters the ministry that we get to do here, right? And part of that is you care for me so that I can teach you, right? And what that offers us the benefit of is that we get to immerse ourselves in the Word, that we get to be a teaching church, right? You can imagine if all of us were just volunteers and we had our own thing going on, our own jobs and, and our own focus. Otherwise, we could probably gather together and have community and, and serve one another and do things, but we wouldn't be able to have the kind of teaching emphasis that we do here. And that's what he's telling this young church. Remember, he's writing to a church that's new and it's early in its years, and its leaders are early and he's designed to establish the gospel within them. And so he wants to see them raise up, whether it be full-time or not, but some vocational leaders, care for them. Make sure that as they care for you, you care for them. Right? And I can say this for sure. We do that here. I always feel loved by you guys. Right? I always feel cared for by all of you. Okay, not always by all of you, but for the most part. Most part, we're doing well. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So this is built on the ideas before, right? That if you keep the gospel, the gospel, if you keep the gospel central, and that if you live empowered by the Spirit and not empowered by your own strength or in the flesh, which typically means sinfully, that when you keep the main thing the main thing and you do it the way God has created you to do it, it pays off. That's what he's saying. So verse 7, let's start there again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows in his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Right? Now he's not shifting into, and again, this would be, if he was saying what you might take away from this, he would be changing his whole gospel message. He's not saying you can add to it, right? He's just saying when you live in the gospel, when you're accountable for the gospel, the grace, the life change that's been given to you, when you live in that and you focus on that, you will see that pay off. 
When you don't and you live in the world and you focus on the world, you'll see it pull you that way too. And so he gives you this kind of universal truth that is used all throughout Scripture. What you sow, you'll also reap, right? But again, don't miss this as good works. Don't miss this as trying hard. It is living in the gospel by the power of the Spirit. That is transforming. Other things pull you off track. Verse 9, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Now notice he hasn't left the reaping and sowing kind of image, this, this image he's been giving us. So let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But the idea here is do good, Right? Not do good things to please God and earn your salvation. Or don't do good things thinking that's going to make you better in the eyes of God. Your works are not enough, right? But it's you transformed by the gospel, living empowered by the Holy Spirit, do things that God has called you to do. We'll see this in a couple weeks, but Ephesians 2, that we're saved by grace, right? Through faith, it's a gift of God, so no one can boast. But we are, verse 10, save to do good things that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a job to do, he's saying. And when you do that, and he says you serve the church first and others as well, but you, you lean into kind of caring for the church. But if you back up to verse 9, he says, and don't grow weary of doing good. Remember this sowing and reaping. Living in the spirit. Don't grow weary. Well, we grow weary when we're not living in the Spirit. We try and go do those good things, but we try and do them in our own strength, right? We try and help people in their sin and their struggle, bear their burdens, but we don't do it in the power of the Spirit. We do it in our own strength. Well, that will wear us out. He's reminding us to stay in the strength of the Spirit. So we'll put this note on the screen. Endurance in our faith. We tire of doing good when we do things in our own strength. The Holy Spirit empowers us to love others in the church so that we can live life together. All the one another's, the implication is you do the one another's empowered by the Spirit within you. Not you have the Spirit that changes you and, and saves you, and then you go do the one another's in your own strength. Well, that's how we see people burned out and frustrated Right? Because they've just left what God has empowered them to do, and they're trying to do it on their own. He's reminding them, stay rooted in the gospel. Stay rooted in the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Paul, it is thought Paul had some vision issues. So Paul almost always, and, and so did every author, but most often would use a scribe. Somebody else would write for him. Every once in a while... You'll see a little note like this from Paul. See what large letters. He's like, this is my hand right here, right now. I want you to know this is from me to you. Verse 12, it is those that want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. And only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Let's pause there for a second. If you were here earlier in the series and you heard the, entry, the opening passages of Galatians, these Jewish leaders that are Christians, but Jewish by birth, Christian by faith, supposedly, have gone into these non-Jewish areas where Paul has established churches. 
And they're adding Jewish Torah law, circumcision, dietary laws, Sabbath festivals, things like that. And they're in kind of forcing them on these Christian churches. And they're telling them that in order to be a good Christian, you must be a good Jew first, which is an addition to the gospel. And that's why Paul is writing, and he reminds us of the initial issue that he's been writing about. He says, listen, they only do that so that they won't be persecuted for the cross. You see, the, the cross is, is the message that you can't do anything about your, state, your, your need for salvation. That there's nothing you can contribute to it. That all you bring to the table is sin and a mess. It's like asking your two-year-old to help you with your financial struggles. Like, they can mess it up, but they can't fix it. All we can do is bring our junk. And Christ has to take that by the power of the Spirit through what he's accomplished here in the gospel and make redeemed lives out of us. And so when you come and you tell people, listen, now on top of what Jesus does for you, you have to do, and just insert any list, right? You've changed the gospel, and you have watered down the power of the cross. But the idea of the cross is so offensive because it requires us to say there's nothing I can give except junk, sin, brokenness, all I can do is make a mess, that's all I've got. And so it is offensive, not only to others, but oftentimes to us because our ego gets in the way. Well, I want to say that I had some contribution here. Well, my contribution was a bunch of mess, right? That was it. Then we have to understand that. And so when we teach people, hey, listen, you're so broken, there's nothing you can do to restore your relationship with God, but Jesus came to fix that, but there's nothing you can do. It's an offensive message. So adding to it, whether it be circumcision or dietary laws or Sabbaths and Torah and whatever, like here's what you can add. Here's the part you can do, right? But when you remove that, you just leave this offensive message that is the message of the gospel, that you're so broken that we are so broken, there's nothing we can do. But Jesus came and did it for us. He says that's why they're adding, because that keeps them from being persecuted for the offense of the cross. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, that's all I got. The cross, that's it. Like I'll often be talking to people, and I just always tell people, listen, I got one bullet in my gun, right? It's the Bible. That's it. Probably a bad reference for today's age, but that's, again, true, right? Like that's all I got. I got one thing. I got the Bible. That's all I got, right? Paul's like, I got the cross of Christ. I got nothing more. But I have everything you need. And because of that, I've been crucified to the world. I've died to this world and this world is dead to me, I live in Christ. And he's saying, listen, I want you to know this, it is enough. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. See, here's what must happen. 
God must make us alive. Jesus says this when the religious leader comes to him. A Pharisee sneaks over to him in the middle of the night, and he says, listen, clearly you got something special. What must I do to be saved? And he looks straight at Nicodemus, and he says, you must be born again. And you can just imagine like that puppy, like, huh? Right? Like you can just, you can just imagine that made no sense. Because the questions that follow are like, hey, I don't understand that. I'm a grown man. How does that happen, right? And Jesus explained to him, no, you were born human already. As he will go on to say in Ephesians, you were born, but you are dead in your sin. You are spiritually dead. You must be made spiritually alive. And he looks at him and he says, the wind blows where it wants to blow. And this wind or breath is the same word as the spirit. The spirit does what the spirit wants to do. You must be born again. See, you have nothing you can contribute. That's the offensiveness of the cross. That you have nothing you can give. That everything that you try and bring to the table, you just make a a larger mess. Everything you try and add, you just add more mess. He says, that's the offense of the cross. He says, so neither circumcision nor uncircumcision doesn't mean anything, but listen to what he says, but a new creation. When you are made alive, you are made new. We'll put this on the screen. The New Testament image of a life empowered by the Holy Spirit is a new creation. Let me say that a little better or a little different maybe. The New Testament of, an, of a life that's been brought, uh, made alive by the Spirit, right? When we say empowered by the Holy Spirit, you kind of think of your maturity down the road. But anyone who is in Christ has been, ama- has been made spiritually alive. And that makes us a new creation. Our life in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is entirely made new. Last week we were talking about, I made a, I made a reference about uh, 12-step program, and we were talking about, by the way, if it was in any way unclear, we love Celebrate Recovery. We're hoping to get that started here. We were talking about an issue of just losing focus and aiming more at a recovery program than at Jesus, right? Well, sorry we picked that up, but it was unclear, and, and one question came out of it. It was somebody after church asked me, he said, hey, how long after you got clean, like before, you wouldn't say, hi, I'm Jeff, and I'm an addict, right? And I said, well, that's an unfair question because I didn't get clean through a recovery program that time. So I didn't say that at all, but probably be about 10 years or so. And that's somebody else that said, yeah, probably about 10 years by, by the time I didn't feel defined by my past and struggles and addiction. I remember, I remember the day when I'd been clean longer than I'd used. It was a tipping point in my life where I'd been out of prison longer than I'd been in prison, where I'd been clean longer than I'd used, where I'd lived a normal life for longer than I lived the screwy life that I lived before. And I remember those shifts, right, that we're a new creation. That's the idea, that when we're made brand new in the beginning, sometimes you don't see a lot of change. It takes time to grow and mature. But the idea of salvation is that you are a new creation, that you have been given something brand new. The Holy Spirit inside you is brand new. You become spiritually alive and a new power. The power of the Holy Spirit awakens in you 
and you are new. It is learning how to live in that and grow in that. And that's Paul's point earlier. When you sow to that, you reap that. Verse 16, he said, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the, Israel, the, upon the Israel of God. The Israel of God is a reference to the church here. Long story. That's what he's talking to. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. In other words, I have been beaten and persecuted for this message, this message of the cross. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. When he looks at this church in Galatia, this non-Jewish church, primarily non-Jewish people that have come to faith by believing in Jesus, who have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, empowered in the Spirit, forgiven, and brought into the family of God like anyone else, but have had these Jewish Christians come in and try and pollute the gospel, he closes by calling them, the church, the Israel of God. He says, you are the fulfillment of what Israel is supposed to be. You are the people with the Spirit of God inside you. You are the people who are to bear one another's burdens. You are the people in which I've empowered you to take the message of the gospel to the nations. To share Jesus with other people. You, Generations Church, are the Israel of God. Or at least one small component of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You gave your life after humbling yourself and, and coming to this world. We will never be able to understand what it means that you became flesh and, and how deeply humbled you were by that. We'll never be able to understand how the author of life dies on a cross. And we'll never be able to live up to with enough humility and enough, self, uh, enough serving of others and selflessness. We'll never be able to live up to what you have done for us. But by your spirit made new inside of us, making us new creations, we can strive towards that. We can lean into the spirit inside of us, the promise of baptism, the very thing you said we all need. And we can learn how to look more like you in our community. Help us to not add or take away from the gospel. Help us to not point out the sins of others missing our own sin. Help us to bear the sins and struggles of one another, but never in our own strength, but in the power that you have placed in us because your spirit lives inside of us. May we be such new creations in this world that the world around us that does not know you desires to know you. May we be so changed, so transformed, so made new that those who know us before and know us after can see nothing but you, Jesus. May we be your church, the Israel of God, here in Cerritos, in Orange County and the greater Long Beach area and beyond. Help us to be your people because you are our Savior. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.